I'm thinking a lot these days about the nature of power. Uh, that is in part because of the transition of power we've witnessed in Washington, D.C., and also the, the power of, of protest because uh, the streets in many cities were flooded with uh, protesters about the transition or related to the transition of power in Washington, D.C. Some of us watched those events and others did not, but we all felt it. We felt the change of power, the change of ideas, and there were some people with uh, big red hats that had white letters on them about making our country great, and there were other people who wore pink knitted hats in protest of the governmental shift. And uh, I always envision Christian worship being a place where everybody takes off their hats and we forget about all of that and all come under the same Christ and, and are shaped by Him instead of the pressures that are outside. But power dynamics are very real. You know it in your family. And you know it if you're serving on a committee right now. And you know it in your department. And you know there are people, and if they're in the room, you won't say certain things. And if they're gone, you will. And there are people in your friend circle around whom you dance because you want them to like you, and when they're not there, you feel better. But power dynamics are a part of life, and they're a part of our, um, of our culture. I have a friend who was saying regarding the various sides all vying for power and influence and cultural dominance, he said, I feel like I need a Christian decoder ring. I love this reading from 1 Corinthians because it entirely upsets our assumptions about power. Both the gospel and its advocates show that when it comes to power, God is doing something distinct in the world, and it is very different from what we're seeing on TV. And so I'd like to focus tonight on verses 22 through 26, which I regard as sort of the heart of this passage, though many books could be legitimately written about this material. I want to say that the center of this gospel, the center of power, the locus of authority, is a man on death row. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. So I'm going to walk piecemeal through this uh, text. But Paul begins by writing about Jews and Greeks, two groups separated by geography, language, religion, and culture. But both had an objection, and the objection was to the Christian gospel. Now, their objections were different, but both objected uh, to the gospel. 
Paul says that the Jews demand or require signs where God is shown or proven um, chiefly in parades of power, of sensorial evidence, evidence that can be seen or tasted. There is a good reason that Jews believed this, because it was the pattern of God's self-revelation in the Old Testament. The way that you knew Yahweh was with you and blessing you was through signs, was through seas that would split in half, and, uh, and furnaces that would, uh, that would uh, cook up anybody, but these three men chosen by God could walk around in that furnace and not be singed, and manna that would fall and collect on on the desert landscape. This is how God demonstrated his power and provision in the Old Testament. And people might think that that's an old-fashioned way of understanding divinity, and yet I find that uh, the notion of God proving himself in obvious spectacle is not something unusual. It's something that we expect too. We think that God is often present uh, in, in terms of cancers, that seemingly vanish. We think that he is present in lifeless hearts that start to beat again. I, I was um, fascinated by a news story out of the Proto-Cathedral of Venice, where the blood of St. Gennaro is kept in a little uh, glass uh, kind of amulet, really. And, it, and during Pope Francis's first visit, to that cathedral. It was the custom, evidently, for popes to kiss the vial of blood. I mean, we've all been there. And, uh, and so he kissed this vial of powdered, now powdered, dried blood, and it liquefied. It liquefied. And so there were, it was an internet furor and sensation. What does this mean? It's obvious that God is saying that he really favors Pope Francis, and in some sense the saints are petitionable. We can speak to them, because the powdered blood became uh, liquefied. Now, I don't know what that means at all. I have no idea, but I do know that it got a lot of attention. And if we had somebody in this church right now with a fractured leg and a cast, and we prayed, and immediately they were healed, this church would double in size next week because the spectacle would, at least for a season, attract people. And that's understandable. So the Jews demand a sign. The Greeks, ah, they're a different cast. The Greeks are subtler. Because what is a miracle, after all? I mean, how do you prove it? What does it even mean that a sea splits in half? I mean, how does that enhance the depth of your own psychological and mindful well-being? I mean, how do you, how do you dissect uh, um, the, the idea of manna from heaven? The Greeks were far subtler. They thought God is not so much in the senses, but in the brain. And you are helped along in your quest by great thinkers like Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. The Greeks are not alone in uh, uh, divinizing intelligence. We, we saw this, too, in the French Revolution. You may know that the French Revolution had a, a bent toward irreligion. Uh, religion was seen as superstitious and overly controlling and uh, overly uh, uh, politicized. And so um, in 1793, uh, the revolutionaries wanted to make a statement by marching into Notre Dame Cathedral and um, and placing on top of the altar a statue of the goddess of reason as a way of saying that science has triumphed over what they would have regarded as superstition. Now, this act of reason was accompanied by thousands of people being slaughtered in the streets of Paris. 
Anyone who says, by the way, that religion creates violence and irreligion creates peace hasn't read history uh, and doesn't know anything about Stalinist Russia uh, or the French Revolution. Uh, but there is this idea that if we can just believe in, trust in human reason, we can get to a, a better place, and that if there is a God or a force to be found, it's in the mind. And this is, this is a, a rough sketch, but the Greek approach according to Paul. What's interesting about Paul is that he says that there is an identical message for both groups. The message does not change. The identical message is we preach Christ crucified. Now, he doesn't say we preach Christ. The idea of a Christ as a teacher or even a hero is largely inoffensive. Uh, few people hate teachers or heroes. I don't know of any crusades these days against the followers of Confucius. Any anti-Confucian people here, really? Uh, or anybody who is, who is experiencing current psychological trauma because of the reign of King Arthur of Camelot. Whether or not he exists, I hope so. But, um, but the, the, no, nobody has, as the Italians w would say, agita in their stomach because of these figures. They don't cause any consternation for us. We accept some things they say and, other, and not other things. So from one point of view, I think it would make more sense for Paul, if I was his advisor, his missional advisor, uh, to win his Corinthian Greek audience by appealing uh, to their interest in wisdom. Why didn't he go to them and simply say, well, this is the Sermon on the Mount? There are uh, thoughtful and brilliant uh, things that Jesus communicated to us about the nature of life and the nature of morals. It, or he could, have, he could have brought before them the parables and said, you can learn a lot about the way God is through these stories that uh, have a, a piercing quality. If you just sit before them and mindfully reflect. But instead... He does something different. Paul says to Jews and the Greeks, we proclaim Christ crucified, a tortured Christ, a hated Christ, a murdered Christ, a pitiable Christ, a Christ who, from, world, from a worldly perspective, lost and didn't win. You see, for Paul, Christian preaching is not Christian without the cross. More than that, for Paul, Christ is not Christ without the cross. The Jews regard this, says St. Paul in this passage, as a stumbling block. That idea is uh, arising from, a, from an Old Testament psalm, Psalm 118, which was uh, quoted or sung as Jesus was entering the city of Jerusalem on what we know as Palm Sunday. Jesus enters the city, they sing Psalm uh, 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the day the Lord has acted, and we will rejoice in it. And in the middle of that jubilant psalm comes a, an off-putting and dark refrain. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This stumbling block image Jesus himself uses, that this stone was put in the way and people are going to trip over it, and that stone isn't just Christ, but Christ slaughtered, Christ crucified. So for them, it doesn't make sense. The Jews object to that idea because according to the law through Deuteronomy, it is cursed as anyone who hangs on a tree. If anybody's crucified, it reveals that God was not pleased with them rather than he was pleased. So therefore, a crucified Christ can't be a biblical Christ. The Greeks have a different objection. 
they look at the cross and they see folly, or what we know as stupidity. The cross is not a dissertation. It's not a treatise. It's not a sonnet. I can't be enhanced as a human being by contemplating the wisdom of a corpse. So there has to be something else, something else more valuable, worthwhile, to deepen my wisdom, deepen my intellectual life. Uh, we may think that this objection to the cross is an ancient thing, uh, an ancient protest against barbarism. It's not. I, I remember preaching it at a, at a particular church which had a theologically mixed constituency. That, isn't that nice, what I said? Theologically mixed constituency. And I asked the rector before I prot at the church, past sense of preach that I just made up, prot at the church, do you have any guidelines or things that, or hot-button issues that you wish for me to avoid? And he said, oh, just one. And I thought, this is terrific. Uh, not ten, not forty, one. And he said, if you could just avoid the atonement, I would be very grateful. <laughs> and now that uh, uh, I avoid the atonement, I mean, that, what else do I talk about? <laughs> anyway, but avoid the atonement. What, what, else, what else can I say? But he, um, uh, I, I, I said, uh, playing the fool, I said, well, tell me why. I'm really interested in your, you know, your uh, homiletic methodology. I mean, how did you arrive at that very informed position? And he said, well, we at this church like to focus on more positive doctrines, like creation and, uh, and, and the resurrection and new life. And I said, well, I appreciate that very much. And I did, but I said, uh, but tell me, why do you have hesitation regarding the cross? And he said, because it makes people feel bad. And I just said, well, okay. I mean, I snuck a reference in the sermon anyway, and I don't think he was very happy. But nevertheless, uh, uh, this is, uh, there's an objection to the odor of blood, to the crucified victim of heaven. We don't, we don't want that, we, we, because what it does is it implicates us all. And it was our pathological addiction to sin that forced uh, the question. So it's still offensive in that way. So why proclaim Christ crucified if it if it necessarily creates offense in Jews and Greeks, Paul's principal audience, why do it? He answers the question in verse 24, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul believes that Christians are the recipients of a divine revelation in the present that our eyes begin to see the tragedy of the cross not as tragedy, nor as mistake, but as the locus of what God is doing in the world. That in fact, we go so far as to say you can't understand God or Christ without the cross. It is the lens through which we understand and interpret God. Uh, C.S. Lewis calls it the deeper magic. It's what God is secretly doing in the world. God takes the worst possible scenario and makes it the cure for the human ailment. It's a new sort of power, a different way of thinking about power. At the cross, we learn some counterintuitive wisdom. We learn that the weak are strong, that fools are wise, that offenders are forgiven, the last are first, the valleys are exalted, prostitutes enter the kingdom of God before the righteous, Life blossoms from death, and we reap what we have never sown. There is no Christianity without the cross. There is no gospel without the cross. 
And so this is the center, which is the offense. But the offense is in some way deepened, not quite doubled, but certainly deepened, by the chosen spokesman of the gospel. This is what he says in verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Notice the similarity between the leader and his public advocates. Both are regarded as weak and unimpressive. That's why I had read tonight the passage from uh, the gospel in which Jesus chooses the twelve apostles. Remember, they didn't apply for the job. Jesus chose these people. Think about that. Jesus choosing these particular men. Matthew, the tax man who compromised on family values. James and John, sons of thunder, power hungry, who every time they didn't get what they want, they threw their mother in the ring to deal with Jesus. Thomas, resident skeptic, well, how do we know this is even really true? Uh, Nathaniel, who made fun of Jesus' hometown, that's classy. Simon the Zealot, he was a terrorist. Uh, Peter, opinionated and at the same time really wishy-washy. And Judas, who preferred cash over Christ. These are the people, the men, Jesus chose. There is a, a lovely and humorous apocryphal story about the post-ascension Jesus after his death and resurrection. He enters back into paradise the blessed and is surrounded by angels who asked him what happened, and he informs them. And they say, well, what now? And he said, well, I chose these 12 men who are going to go throughout the world and proclaim the gospel. And, uh, and the angel said, well, tell us about these men. And Jesus informs them. And, he said, and the angels all say, in unison, we hope that you have a plan B. <laughs> but there is no plan B. Clay jars. That's what we are, you know. That's what St. Paul calls us. We're like clay pots that have been filled with something really grand, but from the outside, we just look generic. But inside, there is a secret power. One such vessel of this power was Tommy Dorsey. You may know him as the blues pianist who became a gospel hymn writer who wrote the famous hymn, Precious Lord, Take My Hand, which became a banner for civil rights in the United States. What you may not know is the story behind that hymn. Uh, this is what Dorsey writes about its origins. I went to St. Louis one morning to work at a revival. I left my pregnant wife asleep in bed. She was soon going to become a mother, and I was anticipating a great joy upon my return. About the second night in St. Louis, the telegram boy brought me a note. I opened it. I read it. It said, your wife just died. Come home. I got to Chicago the next morning, and I learned that my wife died giving birth, and the baby died too. And that killed me. It killed me off. Overnight, my life had become iron that had rusted over. My life had been made dull and useless without any beauty at all. I wanted to go back to the blues. But after putting my wife and that baby in the same casket, I went to a music room and I sat at the piano, just resting my fingers over the keys. 
and seemingly the words like drops of water from the cleft rock of heaven fell upon me and onto the page. Precious Lord, take my hand. Lead me on. Let me stand. I am tired. I am weak. I'm worn. Through the storm, through the night, lead me on to the light. Take my hand, precious Lord. Lead me home. That was sung at Martin Luther King Jr.'s funeral, sung at Mahalia Jackson's funeral. And it gave a sacred voice to the civil rights movement, encapsulating the pains and godly hopes of the African-American community. And that hymn, written from that place of weakness, changed America. It's a different kind of power. What about us? What about us as advocates for the gospel? Uh, what would the world say about us tonight? Are we strong? Are we brave? Are we impressive? Is there anybody here who's been asked to serve on the new president's cabinet? Any Fortune 500 CEOs? Anyone secretly working for WikiLeaks? <laughs> what do we have here? What do we what do we got? Uh, we've got Dana Kreps, who goes out of her way to notice newcomers. And we've got Betty Tallarico, who every time I have a breakdown offers me a word of encouragement and wisdom. We have Arthur Kane, who is always armed with the most clever pun you've ever heard. We have Denny and Rachel Jacob, who are often of the first faces people see here at the church not just handing out bulletins, but greeting people with warm invitation. We have Elizabeth Messer, who leads a Bible study at Brenda McNulty's home and gathers about 70 senior women students from Grove City College. We have the Sheasleys, who week after week set up our communion table so that we can all partake in that holy meal together. We have Andrew Mitchell, who devotedly teaches our children about Jesus. We have Janice Brown and Rachel Anderson, who foster the creativity in our congregation and are seeming to establish the Grace Anglican Theater Department. <laughs> and we have Jody Brown, amidst our intercessors, who's, who prays for people in desperate straits. And we have hundreds of people uh, who have come here and moved away, but their lives have been sutured back together by the gospel. And we have people who have come to church here and discovered God or a God they had previously misunderstood, and now they're in a better place. And we have one woman who said to me recently, I love this church because it's safe to cry here, and it's safe to express fear here, and I don't have to act like anything that I'm not. Now, the world would say, that's small. But we say, that's power. That's the power of the gospel. So, I'm going to switch gears, but it's not much of a gear shift. Uh, today is our in-gathering Sunday. It's the Sunday where we pledge to give some of our money to the cause of the gospel through the local church here at Grace. Now, I know that's a ham-handed segue, but I'm going somewhere. Don't you worry. How do I connect money and evident weakness let me put it this way. Giving to the kingdom of God is a way that we give up worldly power. Giving money to the kingdom of God is a way that we give up worldly power. 
That is money, what the world often equates with power, security, and influence. We give it away. We give it up for a different, for a different kind of kingdom. Now, giving up money can, in fact, hurt because we are often lured in by power, security, and influence. Those ideas which are so prevalent in any culture at any time. And also, it's painful when we talk about money because how we spend money reveals a lot about us. In a a congregation in Washington, I was uh, speaking with a man who was very convicted by the rector's sermon on giving money and said, you know, I was really convicted by the Holy Spirit because I realized in that service that I spend more on my dog's food than I do uh, the cause of Christ. And he said, what do you think I should do? And I said, I think you should go home and pray. I think you should talk to God about it and do what he tells you. But first, seek out the Lord who is merciful to you and who loves you and who wants to liberate you so that you can be a generous person. This in-gathering offers us all an opportunity, uh, all of us, both residents and students, because giving on a regular basis, is a tangible way of saying, I belong here. I not only consume, but I do contribute. And, and I have a place here, and I'm a part of things. And so I really encourage you, uh, if you consider this your place, that you would do that. I don't care about percentages. By the way, the New Testament does not lay down a clear percentage of your income that's supposed to come to the church. There are patterns in the Old Testament that some find advisable and others don't. The New Testament talks about giving from a cheerful heart. And so I encourage you tonight to do that, even to increase your giving. To be candid and upfront with you, I think it's only fair to do that. Monique and I generally have given about 7%, and this year we're raising it to 8 That's what we're doing. You don't have to do that. Uh, but, uh, but this is something that uh, we can pray about and think about together. But it's a way of being involved, and it's more than just being involved. It's a way of surrendering worldly power in order to enhance gospel power, which dethrones false power. It morphs how we think, how we feel, and what we do. The gospel proclaimed here is our decoder ring. It's our decoder ring that helps us understand the true source of real power, which is from the crucified Christ. And the gospel power of the cross says that you are not generic, and you are not ordinary. For you are a child of the high king of heaven. And rusted iron becomes gold in the hands of God. And you are in the hands of God forever. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.